Happy Easter, saints. Thank you. Happy Easter, sinners. All right. All believers all over the world today from India, Cambodia, Indonesia, Iraq, China, Russia, Ukraine, England, France, Germany, Finland, Nigeria, Iswatini, Brazil, Colombia, and the list goes on. We're celebrating. And I believe that today is the most important day on the Christian calendar and addresses one of the most widespread myths about Christianity in our culture. And here's what I mean. It's actually very natural for people to want to divorce the moral teachings of Jesus from his supernatural life. Many people are like, you know, Jesus is awesome. You know, he, he forgave adulterers. You know, that's so nice. Or, you know, Jesus was against religion and politics. He stuck up for the poor. Go, Jesus. Yay, Jesus. And people love the Sermon on the Mount, but when you get to the part about him rising from the dead, being a savior for those who call him Lord, you get a lot of, well, I'm not so sure about all that. And here's the problem with that. The Apostle Paul said in the New Testament that if the resurrection is not true, then um, everything else in Christianity that it teaches is worthless. There are those who say, well, that's Paul's opinion, Jerry. I just accept the parts of Christianity about God being love and how we should forgive and, you know, I just sort of reject the rest. To which I say, okay, well, that's great, but where did you learn that God is love and where do you learn that we should be able to forgive each other? For example, 1 Corinthians 13 is read at a lot of weddings. You've heard it. Love is patient. Love is kind. Doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. Well, guess who wrote that? Paul did. Do you know that this was not a common view of relationships at that time. In Paul's day, it wasn't all about love. In Paul's day, relationships were about honor and retribution. And Paul said if the resurrection didn't happen, then 1 Corinthians basically is useless. Which I sort of digress, but if you don't believe in the resurrection, then maybe you don't have 1 Corinthians read at your wedding. Just throwing it out there. Or what about God is love? Where did you learn that? Oh, from my grandma. Okay, where did she get it? Well, probably 1 John 4, 8. Whoever does not know, uh, sorry, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And again, what do we see is that this is not a common belief in the ancient world at this time when it was written. That God's defining characteristic was love. It was the Apostle John who said that God is love and he also said that anybody who denies the resurrection of Jesus is a liar or a false prophet. Those are heavy words. Do you see the dilemma that we find ourselves? Everything that you appreciate about Jesus came from people who believed that he rose from the dead and who said that if the resurrection is not true, then absolutely everything is false. If we look at it this way, everything has a starting point. Every job, every journey, every living thing, everything has a starting point. Romances have a starting point. You remember that? Do you remember your first romance, your first love? Maybe it was back in grade school. Maybe it was a teacher, right? Maybe it was your neighbor. Maybe it was a fellow student in some parts of Manitoba. It could have been your cousin, but that doesn't matter. Look, even you as a human being had a starting point. Our faith has a starting point. We heard it in, in these two testimonies today as well as a basis. And for many of us, the starting point of our faith it usually is whatever may, maybe our parents told us or what we saw as true. Or maybe it was, you know, what the priest told us. Or maybe it's what the Bible said. And when I was growing up, I was taught a song. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it for me. Maybe you're familiar with that one. 
And when you're young, that works as a foundation for truth. But as you get older, you begin to get a little bit uneasy with that foundation. You get a little uneasy for what you think may be right. And so the question is, how do we know what is true about God? Is it because my mom or my dad said so? Is it because the priest said so? Or is it because some book said so? And these answers are not just sufficient enough for the basis of our faith. The Apostle Peter had some questions as well. Peter had been a pretty trusting guy. He had been one of the first ones to sign up to follow Jesus. And he took Jesus at his word. And as a matter of fact, he got a whole bunch of other people to follow him. And then when Jesus was put on trial and he was killed, everything in Peter's world came crushing down. Jesus wasn't supposed to die. He was supposed to save the world. How could God let this happen? And if Jesus was so loving and in control, then why had he left Peter and the other disciples alone by themselves in this mess? And Peter's struggle of faith got so bad, he, he outright denied being a follower of Jesus. But everything changed for him that one early Sunday morning. John records it. He's the other guy in this story. John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. Of course, John has to throw that in there. And said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb, and both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over, looked in, and the strips of linen were lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So Peter walks into the tomb. He walks in discouraged. He walks in defeated. He walks in as a doubter. And he walks out now as one of the most important leaders in the new Christian movement. And from that point on, the disciples are going to look to Peter now to lead them. And what was it that changed him? Was it some news flash of some insight into Jesus' teaching for the last three years? Oh, of course not. It was the fact that he came face to face with a place that should have had a body in it, but didn't. And so this morning, I just want to put you in Peter's place for a moment. Maybe you've come today to, as, a, as a, a, maybe you're a creaster, you know, Christmas and Easter, that's what you do, or you've been an invitation to, to watch a baptism. Maybe you have tons of questions. You know, there are just some things that just don't add up with Christianity. And maybe like Peter, you feel he's disappointed you. Or maybe you've disappointed him. You know, Peter has denied Jesus so many times. It's quite possible that Peter felt at one point that the relationship is too far beyond repair. And today I would hope that you can experience what Peter did. I wonder if it's possible to confront you with the fact of the empty tomb and its implications. First of all, believe it or not, the fact that the tomb was empty that morning when Peter got there is actually a fairly agreed upon fact. You know, obviously not everybody believes that Jesus rose from the dead, but just about every scholar agrees that there was a man named Jesus who really lived. 
that he was executed by the Romans, that he was buried, and that on the third day, the tomb where he was laid was found empty. On those points, there is actually no substantial disagreement. The question for debate is, how did the tomb get empty? How? And really, there's only three options. And the first is somebody stole the body, and then the myth grew that Jesus was resurrected. But the question here becomes, well, then who did it? Who stole the body? And I watch a lot of crime shows on, on TV. That's my, that's my release, right? True crime, ID, whatever. This, my kids think I'm sick, but it's okay. They watch me very closely now. And for a suspect, you need to have means and motive in a crime. And when, so if we look at this, if the body is stolen, therefore we have a crime, there are only three possible suspects in this case. The first suspects are the Romans. Now, the Romans certainly had the means of stealing a body. Pilate puts a garrison of Roman soldiers in front of the tomb. That garrison is a unit of 16 soldiers that, that were there on guard that stood around the clock. As a matter of fact, four were standing. The other 12 would be in a semicircle in the area. They could have done it, but what would have been their motive? You know, they were the ones who had killed Jesus in the first place. And Pilate, you know, um, uh, ordered an official Roman seal to be placed on Jesus' tomb, which meant that anybody who would disturb the seal would do so on point of death. In other words, you would be executed right there for doing that. And the Roman soldiers knew that. So reason, reason tells us that they wouldn't have touched the body. The second suspects are the Jewish leaders themselves. You know, what's their motive? Well, the only motive one can come up with for stealing the body is somehow to preempt the disciples' claims that there would be a resurrection. Steal the body before they do, and when the disciples claim that Jesus is resurrected, they can produce the body, and and then uh, the disciples will, will obviously have to shut their mouths and not say anything. But they never did that. And they certainly would have if they'd been able to. It would have been the fastest way to shut the disciples up, but it never happened. The third is the disciples themselves. And the biggest question was, how did they sneak past the garrison? And and that's where the details of the uh, resurrection story start coming into play. At one point, the, the linens there are neatly folded in the tomb. When you think about robberies, the last thing that people do in a hurry is put things back real nicely. There's not a whole lot of thought of tidiness when things like that happen. Think about this. Would stealing Jesus' body really have served their purposes? Right? In a religious hoax, the leaders gain some sort of measurable assets, whether money, sex, power. It's usually the top three. You know, what did this new testimony get the disciples? Their testimony gained them absolutely no power. As a matter of fact, for their whole lives. They were pursued until death. And almost each and every one of them was either tortured or killed for their confession. According to the early historian Eusebius, Peter was forced to watch his wife crucified, and then the next day he was crucified, but upside down. Also, the story of the resurrection didn't gain them any money. The apostles were notoriously poor, and any money that they did get, they ended up giving away. Their testimony didn't get them any sex because they taught that sex was only to be experienced between two people in a monogamous marriage. They taught Christians to joyfully live because they said our kingdom is not of this world. 
You know, we can put up with misery. We can put up with hardship because we're rest assured of a kingdom there. That one is going to come. And that is based on the assurance of the resurrection of Jesus. And they would have taught that. They would have lived that way themselves. And if they knew it was a hoax and that they, you know, they just st- stole the body, it makes no sense. And so the theory that somebody stole the body just fails to be convincing because they put their lives on the line. Then there's this theory that Jesus never died. It's called the swoon theory. That maybe Jesus didn't die on the cross. He just passed out. When they put him in the tomb, he revived. And then, you know, he snuck out, you know, appeared to a few of his disciples, convinced them that he was resurrected. Then he headed off to France where he started a family with Mary Magdalene. And they lived there until they were discovered by Tom Hanks. And he broke the code a few years ago. I'm glad you get my dry humor. There are a number of problems with the theory. First, the Romans were experts at crucifixion and execution, and they knew when somebody was dead. Roman law said if you pulled a man down before he died, you could be killed in the same manner. In fact, just to make sure, they pierced Jesus' side with a spear. We read that, and the gospel accounts say that blood and water came out. And let me tell you what's significant about that detail. We know something medically now that they didn't know when they wrote it. After somebody has died, the blood in their body begins to clot. That blood begins to separate from the watery serum. To see blood and water would indicate that Jesus was dead prior to the spear entering his side. And secondly, it's a medical verification of Jesus' death. The significance which they would have not known when the writers included that in the detail. Another problem with the swoon theory is that Jesus was beaten prior to the crucifixion. That was not common. Usually the beating was a punishment of its own. Remember, Pilate only intended to beat Jesus instead of crucifying him. You know, the Roman politician and scholar Cicero said that the Roman beatings by themselves often ended in death for the victim. Cicero said that the extreme loss of blood, sometimes disembowelment or a rib flying off the cage took place. This is one of the reasons probably why Jesus died before the other two men that he was crucified with. Because they didn't endure a beating. And the point being that if anybody was to survive a crucifixion, it wouldn't have been somebody who was whipped that brutally and lost that much blood. And so if Jesus somehow survived, how did he move that stone and slip past the Roman guards undetected? And then in his battered and weakened condition, go and convince disciples he was the Lord of life and the judge of the earth. And so this theory that Jesus didn't die, it doesn't seem like a good one either. And so the final option, when you think about it logically, is that Jesus did rise from the dead. It's by far the simple, most simple explanation. It's the most compelling That Jesus' resurrection appeared to his disciples and commissioned them to go around the world to testify, even if it cost them their lives. And they did that. And they did it gladly because they had seen the resurrection, resurrected Jesus with their own eyes. And so if this, the simplest explanation is the most compelling, why is it not universally accepted? In the words of one German philosopher, he said the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it is a very unusual event. And second, 
if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. An unusual event. You know, some people don't want to consider a supernatural explanation. And ironically, they, they do this in the name of good history and science as if taking those disciplines seriously means refusing to even consider a miraculous evidence. But closing ourselves off to certain types of explanations, no matter how compelling they are, is the definition of closed-mindedness. And others do it because if it's true, then they have to change the way they live. So if Jesus really rose from the dead, that means he is Lord over morality, over salvation, over politics, over history. That he is Lord over everything and it affects everything that you and I do every day. Basically, the man who coined the term agnostic admitted this much. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning for myself as well as most of my contemporaries. The philosophy of meaninglessness was a philosophy of liberation. And the liberation we sought was a liberation uh, from was Christian morality. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever considered the evidence on, on your own terms? Or are there reasons why you really won't consider it? You know, you might say, well, if the resurrection is true, then why is the world in such a mess? You know, why did my life turn out like this? Or, you know, God, why aren't you more involved in the earth? You know, if you showed up every once in a while, maybe it would help. Or why aren't there, you know, why are there so many different religions? And the questions go on. Or maybe you just don't want anybody telling you what's right or wrong morally in any way or worldview. But I want to challenge you today, maybe today, to open your mind. Be open-minded enough to consider the evidence on its own terms. To go back to, everybody has access to a Bible now. Just go read the story where Peter walked into that empty tomb. Put yourself in there. And realize that there are implications that have taken place here. You see, because when we look at the resurrection, it meant three things for Peter. First, it meant that Jesus was who he said he was. Because if Jesus really rose from the dead, then Jesus was who he said he was, regardless how it contradicted Peter's perceptions. In Acts chapter 4, Peter gets into a real interesting argument with a bunch of academics and theologians. And they were saying that there was no way that Jesus could be the Messiah because of X, Y, and Z. And all the smart people of the day agreed, you know, it couldn't be true. But in Acts chapter 4, 19 to 20, Peter said to them, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. In other words, look, we're not saying that we're smarter than you guys. You guys got more degrees hanging on the wall than our thermometers. But then on the other hand, we know this guy who came back from the dead. And no offense to you, his coming back from the dead triumphs your knowledge. Let me ask you to do a thought experiment. Take whatever objection you have to faith. Maybe it's the too many different religions, maybe it's too much pain in the world, maybe whatever, whatever it may be. Let me just say, suppose you were the first one at that empty tomb. And let's say Jesus encountered you then and he said, I am who I say I am, but I'm not going to answer your questions now. I will later. If you were actually in that place, would you be willing to suspend your objections? To live with some unanswered questions until later. 
And that thing, oh, that's the problem, Jerry. I can't go back. I can't, I can't go back and see him. Yeah. But even today, the evidence for it is strong enough to reach a certain conclusion about it. And the breakdown is not in the insufficiency of the evidence, but in some prejudice that keeps us from considering it in our own terms. Let me be personal. This is how faith worked for me. If you've gone back in our life lesson series on doubt, you know, I had a lot of questions. I had some terrible doubt. I, I do remember one day in a casual conversation, we were in college, it was an out-of-the-blue question. Had, you know, just out-of-the-blue, you, you ever have those? You're talking, somebody asks this question, just sort of smacks you in the side of the head. It's just out-of-the-blue. And somebody once said, what if you were the first one at the empty tomb? Think about that. What if you were the first one at the empty tomb? Would, would I be willing to rethink my objections temporarily until God explained them to me? See, faith occurs when the unexplainable confronts the undeniable. Faith occurs when the unexplainable confronts the undeniable. And you may have questions you think are unexplainable, but the resurrection is a miracle. However, that it's undeniable. And one of two things happen. Either you refuse to even consider the evidence until God explains himself, as if you refuse to consider the possibility that there is a God who actually runs the universe, whose ways and whose understanding are higher than yours, or you humble yourself before God and say, okay, okay, God, I'll consider the evidence on its own terms, realizing that maybe, God, you have ways of running the universe at first that don't really make a whole lot of sense to me. And I think what we have to realize, especially in our age of intellect, that faith is not having all your questions answered now. It's wrestling with the unexplainable, knowing that the unexplainable does have an explanation on the basis of the resurrection. And maybe you pride yourself about being a doubting person. Well, let let me ask you, are you willing to, in light of the resurrection, doubt your doubts? Because of the resurrection, Peter realized that his past no longer defined him. As I said, Peter felt like he let Jesus down so much with his relationship with Jesus was beyond repair after those denials. But then he writes in his letter later on in in the New Testament, 1 Peter, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so there are two things in there that totally change how you see yourself. Being born again and living hope. Let me start with living hope. Your hope. Your hope is whatever you believe gains you acceptance before God. Most people will believe that God's acceptance of them is sort of based on how good they are. You know, we're all born good, which we're not. Or how well we keep the tenets of our religion And you know, I'll just say this, I may work fine for you, but until you fail, just like Peter. And then you start wondering, you know, how good is good enough? 
And the gospel is that Christ earned our acceptance in our place. He paid the penalty for our sin. He lived life and died the death. And the cross was Jesus running after us when you think about it, taking upon himself our shame, our guilt. He was beaten. He was spat upon. Nails in his hands and feet. It was so painful that men would weep. They would vomit. They would urinate all over themselves when they were put on the cross. And the Romans would crucify them naked in a public place, much like going to a mall. And that was Jesus bearing our sin and our shame. And do you understand then what the cross really is? It's Jesus taking the place for our rebellion and our wayward living. And the cross for many people in our culture is just a decoration. It's just a little wonderful symbol of our faith. But really, when you think about it, the cross is everything. It's God bringing you back. The cross is not just a decoration. It's a declaration. It's a declaration that even though you and I deserve condemnation, Jesus took it all in our place and offers us a restored intimacy of sonship if we choose to receive it. The resurrection was Jesus making everything new. It's where Jesus took the garments of our sin and put them away in the grave and clothes us with his robe of righteousness, where he gave us the ring of new life, this authority to overcome sin and corruption, this authority and ability to put your family back together, to escape the curse over your life, to make things new again. He put on our feet sandals of a privileged position with the Father so that you and I can boldly come into God's presence. We don't need a priest to do it for it. We are his sons and daughters. And if the cross and resurrection are not true, then look at then it's just a quaint story with no real meaning. It's about a bunny. But if it is true, then it means that there are none of us who are beyond the reach of God's grace. And the resurrection is God's declaration that he has accepted Jesus' payment on our behalf. And in the resurrection, he declared that Jesus' payment was sufficient. And now Jesus stands alive by the throne of God. Alive, testifying to that. And that's why Peter says, I have a living hope kept in heaven for me. It's something that is safe. The living Jesus stands there as my acceptance into heaven. And whenever an accusation was brought against me, any reason I should be rejected from God's presence, Jesus says, I paid for that. I paid for that. You know, most people in our culture believe that all religions teach the same thing. They don't. Our hope is not in how well we live, but in Jesus who took our place. And so in the resurrection, I I have a living hope that is no longer based on me and what I do. And furthermore, Peter says, in the resurrection, I am born again. Which means God has started this whole new process, this new life within me. And the power of the resurrection turned Peter, a a Jesus-denying coward, into Peter, the rock of the church. And that same power can work in you and me. This church, Soul Sanctuary, is filled with people who have stories of a past filled with the most tragic mistakes. Addiction, infidelity, bitterness, racism, hate, and the list goes on. But I know of story, and some of you are the story where God has changed you. Not because you were decent people who needed a second chance, but because you were dead people who he made alive. 
if the cross and the resurrection are true, your history doesn't have to determine your identity or your destiny. Your future is not defined by your past mistakes, but rather by the promises of God. A God who makes all things new. A God who clothes you with power. And if the cross and the resurrection are true, there is nothing you could do that would make God love you more. There is nothing you have done that makes him love you less. And he gives us this gift, and it's a simple gift called grace. You ever notice... That religious people are, can be some of the most unloving people on the planet. Social media. Right? They can be self-righteous. It's easy to type, I'm so self-righteous. Haters. Maybe, maybe today you've been a victim of that. I'll say that. That's because religion cleans you up on the outside without changing the inside. You know, if you have kids, you know, you want to know what one of the most interesting parts of trying to raise them is? It's the potty training stage. And all parents said what? Amen, right? You don't have kids, well, just wait. Because it's actually the most weirdest time of your life when you think about it. If you actually think about it, you applaud for poop. Right? Do we not? You know, we use candy as a bribe. But with one of my sons, no names, no numbers, I had to play a game. We never played Sink the Cheerio. You can do your own thing. I had to keep it much more simple. It was called Hit the Water. <laughs> or there was another one who was very quiet for a long time, and when Sharon walked into his room, there he was standing there, and what? Poop was everywhere. His arms, his face on the wall. I remember my wife saying, I don't understand how he got poop on his face. And yet he's crying. Why? Because he's trying to clean himself up. And that's what religion is. It's usually, it just leaves you in a worse state. And I know that's nasty and it's a bad illustration. And I'm not trying to gross you out, but I am. But that's what our heart is like. Religion is cleaning up the exterior without cleaning the heart. Isaiah, Isaiah 54, 6 says that religion is like filthy rags. It doesn't change the heart. It only leads to pride and more filthiness. And what we see with the resurrection is that God wanted to confirm a changing of our hearts. And that can't happen by you resolving to do better, to be better, to be good. It happens when you experience God's grace and that makes you more like him. And maybe you feel that you're too messed up, that God's just not interested in you. Maybe you feel that your mistakes are just too severe, that your addictions are too strong. Look at God breathed life into a dead body. He breathed courage into a cowardly Peter. He breathed love into a murderous Paul. When you believe, he will breathe new life into you. And finally, Peter's future was secure. Through the resurrection, we now have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Some of you can agree with me that as you get older, everything begins to spoil, right? Riches get spent, health weakens, buildings fall apart, bodies fall apart. The list goes on. And the fact of the matter is, as we get older, we just can't hold on to any of it. A life of faith and unbelief are never more contrasted in how the believer 
and the unbeliever approach that reality. As we come face to face with our own mortality. Richard Russell, who wrote the book, Why I'm Not a Christian, he said that he near, as he neared death, darkness that I have always feared is finally overtaking me. But what does Peter do? He reminds us that we have an inheritance that can never perish, that will never spoil, that will never fade. I'm pretty sure all of you know the story of Cinderella. Beautiful girl, father gets remarried, and then unexpectedly dies. She's forced to live with the wicked stepmother, two jealous stepsisters, who turned her into a slave and made her feel ugly. One night, a fairy godmother shows up, gives her a dress, a pumpkin carriage, and she goes to the ball where she experiences life to the fullest and the love of the prince. And it's all as it should be until that is the clock strikes midnight and she's swept back into her old situation. And all that's left of that night, as a reminder, is that glass slipper. And who has it? It's the prince. And the best part of the story is that the prince doesn't forget her. And he won't rest until he finds her and he brings her back to the palace. And so what does he do? He goes house to house looking for her until he finds her. Can I present to you today, in light of Disney, that the resurrection is like that glass slipper. That we live in a world under the influence of a wicked stepmother, the devil. We're oppressed by her two wicked daughters, the world and our flesh, who constantly beat us up, who constantly tell us we're worthless. But when we come to the gospel, we meet the prince And now we have the shoe, right? The resurrection that it's God's promise of what he is making us into and that he will return to us. And so what do you do when the stepmothers or stepsisters treat you poorly? What do you do when they make you feel worthless? You defy their lies with that glass slipper. You tell yourself that in the resurrection, that this dirty dungeon that we find ourselves is, is not our home. This wicked stepmother with her and, and, and stepsisters are really not our family. This drab existence is not my future. I am loved by that prince. I am cherished by him. And he's coming looking for me. He's coming back. And faith has that starting point. It has a basis. It's the resurrection. And the resurrection tells me that Jesus is who he says he is. This is not just a fairy tale, but rather he is making me into somebody new and that he is coming back for me. Read the book. Do me a favor. Take your hands, open them in front of you. Don't worry, him. It's not a cult. But open your hands in front of you with your palms up. What are you clinging to? Do you cling to doubt? Are you clinging to fear? Are you clinging to control? You're a control freak, right? Maybe you're clinging to something that is just so tight that is it possible that the risen Christ is speaking to you today to say, hey, let it go. Maybe you bought into the lie that says life is always going to be this way, miserable. Listen, because of the resurrection, we are people of hope, so we don't have to buy into the lies The lies that say it's always going to be like this. Maybe you're married to somebody and you have this sense that your marriage is always going to be like this. 
the risen Christ can speak to you and he can destroy that lie. And he tells you it can be better. Maybe you're struggling with suicidal thoughts or you have this thought of why keep going. On this Resurrection Sunday, let the risen Christ speak to you and tell you that you matter. That he has a plan for you. And maybe you won't see it today, but you will. Maybe your struggle is with some sort of addiction or compulsion that's just tearing you apart. And you have the sense that you're always going to struggle with this. It's never going to leave. Well, what happens when the risen Christ speaks to us and then he says to us, let it go. Let it go because it's not true. It's not true. To be a Christian is to have an encounter with the risen Christ over and over and over again. And Jesus lives in, you know, I can put it this way. Jesus lives in some sort of mystical, beyond words sort of way. And he keeps appearing to his first followers as he appears to us all the time. As we read the scriptures, as we get caught up in worship, as we get caught up in prayer. But he speaks to us. He speaks to the inner recesses of our soul to tell us what we need to let go. Maybe, maybe you recently lost a loved one and you sense that you're never going to heal. The truth is you'll never be the same, but you will heal. And so simply allowing the risen Christ to meet you and to bring you hope in this moment starts the process. Maybe you have a financial train wreck on your hands. Jesus speaks and said, look, there's still hope. Maybe you went through or are going through a messy divorce. You're asking yourself, am I ever going to get through this? Listen, the risen Christ speaks to you and he says, I am there with you. And so for some of us, it's the risen Christ convicting of us what we've held on to today and we need to let it go. And our hands are open right now in a second way. Why? To allow Christ to place the things that he needs to for our lives into them. Maybe it's that next step in your faith walk. Maybe it's a dream or a vision of a new kind of life. Maybe your prayer today is, God, will you please put something new in my hands? God, I believe, but help my unbelief. And today, maybe you want to surrender your life to Jesus, the risen Savior. The fact of the matter is, on any given Sunday, any given day, we want to pray with you and for you, and you can respond however you feel comfortable. You can message us. There's a number that's on the screen. You can text. You can call. You can email us. And we have people on the other end of everything, always waiting and wanting to talk and to pray with people. But before I pray, this Easter Sunday morning, let's take a moment, a moment of silence, And let the risen Jesus speak to us what we need to hear. The tomb is empty. And now we decide. God, I acknowledge that you are the maker of heaven and earth. I acknowledge you 
as the ground of our being. I acknowledge you as ultimate reality, and I thank you that you have not given up on this world and that you have not given up on any one of us here today. We thank you that you continue to give life and that you continue to conquer death. And for some of us, we are barely hanging on to this idea because so much around us is pointing into the opposite direction. So today, we cling to what little shards we have. So God, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the empty tomb. And I thank you for this Jesus who forgives us and restores us and who gives us hope. And for those who are looking for hope today, may they be met with that. May you speak to the deepest recesses of their hearts and give them peace. God, you are so good and big and deep and wide and magnificent. And so on this Resurrection Sunday, we want to worship and acknowledge you as the giver of everything that is good. So please meet us in our pain, in our despair, in our questioning, in our doubt, but also in our joy. And speak to us and keep reminding us again that he is risen, that he is risen indeed. In Jesus' name, amen. As Jordan said earlier, go ahead. Every year we do an Easter offering. In the past, you've heard we collected for Ukraine Living Word, which is downtown. The Lighthouse Mission, again, downtown Winnipeg. Even our own daycare, which is up and running here. This year, we decided that our focus would be the home of the Good Shepherd in Brazil. Now, it's located in southern Brazil. It provides care for children coming literally from unsafe living situations. Randy and Carla Redman are the missionaries. You've seen them. If you're a part of Seoul, you know who they are. Possibly they've been here before. And it's in this community that these children are given actually a hope and a future as they learn healthy communication, social skills. They receive an education and experience God's love for them and their families. Majority of these kids are all victims of sexual assault in one way or another. Because a number of these Brazilian children experience abuse, neglect, unsafe living environments, and it's the courts that are actually giving them to Randy and Carla to care for. And so this home exists to break the cycle. And children who come to the home vary from zero to 18 years old, and they live in one of nine cottages where all their needs are met and a safe and caring environment. They have an adult that looks after them like a mother figure. At any given time, there are about 60 to 80 kids on the compound site. And it's here where they experience an atmosphere of hope as they see Christ's love in everyday life. They learn life skills. They're taught stuff through music, through art, and even haircutting. And so they have nine cottages or dorms on site, and they receive that individual care. And some children will stay weeks, some will stay months, some have stayed years because of the circumstances. This year, they're building a new boys' dorm, and a total of over 33,000 Canadian is still needed. $8,000 alone for furniture and appliances. So my request on Easter Sunday is, would you consider making a special gift for Brazil today? Because without question, this project will impact the lives of hundreds of young people, and all can play a part of that. And so if you're going to do this, make making Easter your Easter offering out to Soul Sanctuary. If you've got a check, you can go online or you can do whatever. Just market Brazil, market missions. And 100% of what you donate will go to the home of the Good Shepherd. You can text any dollar amount on the app of 84321. Just follow the steps. And like I said, the, 
The home of the Good Shepherd is for helping. All the, all the funds we raise will be helping in the completion of their dorm. To which I say in advance, thank you for your donation. I'm going to ask you to rise with me. The worship band's going to sing us out. You can stay in here for a little bit and enjoy the music if you want. But I want to give you the blessing and dismiss those who need to go and get your kids. Actually, please wait for your children to come down. Lauren or Jordan, if you can message or Piper, message Andre to dismiss the kids. That way we don't have traffic running back and forth. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. So may God the Father, the one who brought Jesus back to life, the one who has the power to bring us to life, and the Holy Spirit who sustains us, may send us out from this place of worship and a time of celebration. Why? To live lives of hope, to be nurturers of the vision of wholeness, and to serve as healers in this wounded world. And may the truth of Easter, may the joy of Easter, may the blessings of Easter be with you this day and all days. And may it rest upon you as you mingle with friends and family to your best ability in this crazy pandemic. Now go and be the difference maker in our world and live the church. And we'll see you next week. Be blessed.